0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about fighting cancer, because fighting cancer and all the research that goes into that is branching into some really amazing territory these days. I mean, we look everywhere for clues on how to fight this deadly disease. We even apparently look to ancient viruses, So how could that work? How could an ancient virus help us do that? Well, guess what? Someone is studying that. And Katie Enfield is the study lead and training fellow at the Francis Crick Institute's Cancer Evolution and Genome Instability Laboratory and joins us now. Katie, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, this sounds like fascinating work. First of all, why why look at ancient viruses?
1: Well, it's kind of how the research took us there. Um, it's not something I was expecting initially, but we have some fantastic collaborators, and that's their area of expertise.
0: Okay, so what did you see that made you think, okay, this is promising?
1: <clears throat> right. Well, eventually, sorry, we, we first started, we noticed a type of immune cell called a B cell clustering around lung tumors in patients. And we were able to make a connection between these clusters and patient survival. And B cells are actually a part of the immune system that produces antibodies. So we typically think of them as fighting infections um, rather than cancer necessarily. And we were surprised to find that in some lung cancer patients, the target of these antibodies were fragments of ancient viruses that have kind of woken up in cancer cells.
0: Okay, what kind of ancient viruses are we talking about here?
1: Right, well, they're just called um, endogenous retroviruses. So these are remnants of infections that happened tens of thousands or even millions of years ago that managed to slip a copy of their gen- genetic material into our ancestors' DNA. And now they've kind of degraded over time. They're no longer to produce a whole virus. And in normal cells, they're not really expressed and kind of hide in our DNA. But in the chaos of cancer cells, when they're growing uncontrollably, some of these viral fragments wake up and get expressed. And they're, this actually tricks the immune system into attacking the cancer cells because it mimics a viral infection.
0: Okay, this is wild. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. It's crazy. It is crazy because <clears throat> I'm thinking, how did, how did you identify these ancient viruses? Like, did you have to wait until cancer was attacking and then go, wait a minute, what is this? Where did this come from? Well, we actually,
1: we first identified it um, using um, our experimental model, um, using kind of a screening approach. Um, apparently, this is kind of something that often happens in um, kind of... M- mouse tumors that we use to study cancer. And then we just checked for these same types of things in human patients. And we were surprised to find that we were able to detect them.
0: All right. So then at that point you go, okay, this is promising. What are the next steps?
1: Right. So I guess we're very excited about this fighting and very surprised. Um, so I guess the next steps are kind of you know, what are we going to do moving forward? So I guess there's two things that are important for um, thinking about revolutionizing cancer treatment. So first of all, we found that um, patients with the antibodies that target these ancient viral fragments responded better to immunotherapy. Um, So again, this is highlighting B cells and antibody response and how important it is um, for patient survival. So we can try to find ways to boost this response. And then the other thing, I guess, is this enticing thought that um, because antibody responses are boosted by vaccination, there's the potential that vaccines could be developed against these ancient viral fragments, either as a cancer treatment or maybe even down the line as cancer prevention.
0: Okay, so what do these little bits of the viruses tell us? Like, what were these viruses like?
1: Um, So I think there's some research to say what they used to do, and it's actually kind of Um, fascinating that based on, um, you know, kind of comparing what we know to other retroviruses, they may have even caused cancer in our ancestors millions of years ago. So it's kind of an interesting loop that now we may be able to use them to fight cancer.
0: Right. So does this show us how the body adapted?
1: Well, I guess it's just kind of a natural part of um, evolution. So I guess they haven't really adapted. It's just kind of a, a coincidence in a way.
0: In what way? What do you mean?
1: So they've infected us a long time ago and then integrated into our genome. And then over time, they've kind of just been, um, there've been mutations and and rearrangements in the DNA, so they, they don't become infectious anymore. They're just kind of, we actually used to think of this, these bits of DNA as kind of junk, maybe not doing anything. And to be fair, in a normal circumstance, they're not really doing very much and they certainly can't reinfect cells. But Um, some remnants of them do remain and just kind of get re-expressed when when people have cancer sometimes
0: oh my goodness the body is an amazing thing isn't it Katie because (laughs) here were these little bits of DNA that we thought oh they're just lying around but that's not how it works it sounds like everything is useful we just don't know how or when it's useful exactly exactly okay so what do you what do you where do you take this from here
1: Right. So we're going to follow this up in more of our preclinical models. And we're also going to look in more patients that receive immunotherapy to better understand this response, you know, Um, there's other patient populations, other cancer types, because we've just been looking at lung cancer. So we'll just definitely be following this up in other cancer types to see how widely applicable it is.
0: Is this why there's so much study of ancient viruses too, Katie, like not just the ones that you see in the DNA, but I know there's a curiosity too, about what we can find even through archeology, span right? Ancient viruses.
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not too up on that research to be honest. But But we're always learning from the past to inform what's happening now.
0: It is so fascinating. Katie, thank you so much for your time on that. Thank you so much. That is Katie Enfield, who's the study lead and postdoctoral training fellow at the Francis Crick Institute's Cancer Evolution and Genome Instability Laboratory. I know, long name, but still fascinating work that they are doing there. Essentially, they find these little bits of ancient viruses in our DNA, thought that they were, I don't know, dormant, useless, whatever, just remnants sitting there. And it turns out, no, that there are certain circumstances where those things kick into gear. And now they think those remnants of ancient viruses in our DNA might actually help us fight things like lung cancer. The body's DNA is constantly amazing, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. It's back to work in Ottawa today, and there's lots of work to be done. So let's talk about what's on the agenda now with our chief political correspondent in Ottawa, David Akin. David, first up, what about the issue of the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, testifying last week? Is there more to come on that?
2: There is a lot more work on the whole foreign interference file, absolutely no question. Uh, not, that, that's it, though, for, for Katie Telford. Uh, she testified on Friday, and, and to be honest... Um, though the opposition demanded that she show up and take questions. She did take questions, but there really wasn't a lot of new stuff that she put on the table. She said she's a consumer of intelligence briefings. She doesn't produce them herself, and we have heard from the people who produce these intelligence briefings, our CSIS and the National Security Agencies, et cetera. So not a lot there, but as I say, still a lot of work. We have not one, not two, but three committees of MPs who are looking into this, Last week, what we heard uh, where Telford was was the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. Okay, so we call it PROC for short, Procedure and House Affairs. PROC is meeting again this week, continuing this study of foreign interference. They'll take testimony from a former national security advisor, from a former clerk of the Privy Council. That's PROC. Then there's another committee of MPs, the Ethics Committee. They, too, are probing this. They've taken testimony, uh, sort of, they testimony from, Members of the diaspora community who are affected by some of this foreign interference, mostly Chinese, uh, uh, members of our Chinese community um, who say they get harassing phone calls, etc. It's been very interesting testimony mm-hmm. that they've been uh, getting. And then we've got a third committee of MPs, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, NSICOP. There's your other acronym of the day, <laughs> NSICOP. This group is all, they all have top secret clearance, so they can look at classified material. The problem is they're sworn to secrecy, so they can't tell us about it. Um, and the politics of all of this at whatever committee we're at, because it's partisan MPs and partisans are going to partisan, the, the NDP and bloc have been saying, this isn't. we're not going to get some real answers on this. We need an independent public inquiry. That, though, we're not going to get an answer on until the end of May when David Johnson is supposed to tell the prime minister thumbs up or thumbs down on that issue. Uh, I'm hearing from liberal MPs privately that, who believe that there's no way Johnson can avoid recommending a public inquiry. But again, that's probably not something we're going to hear about till the end of May. And then we've got to figure out the terms of reference, and, and that's going to be a partisan issue. So the, all of which is to say foreign election interference is still a big topic here in Ottawa, and uh, there's lots of venues for that issue to be discussed. Three Commons committees, plus, of course, the daily question period.
0: Wow, okay, and for the government, I guess their priority is, is the budget, right? We're expecting that to be passed?
2: Uh, yes, and we are expecting to be passed. And and this is the thing. Yes, this this budget was was uh, tabled just before the Easter break, at uh, 350 billion dollar spending program. And maybe we to spend, should spend a little time taking a look at that. So the government will start to get that on the, the uh, sort of sort of the uh, the approvals process for the budget. It will pass because the new Democrats have signed that deal with the Liberals. The new Democrats are supporting the minority Liberal government. Uh, and in exchange, the NDP are getting stuff in that budget. And the big thing for them was moving forward on universal dental care. Mm-hmm. And in fact, over the last couple of weeks, even though MPs were not here in Ottawa, they were very busy, ministers uh, and the prime minister, in fact, they were busy crisscrossing the country, selling the budget. That's what the government ministers are doing. And Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, was doing the same thing, taking credit for dental care. And meanwhile, the Conservatives and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev crisscrossing the country Shooting down the budget, so that was the uh, that's what they've been doing, r- racking up their frequent flyer miles over the last um, couple of weeks. But uh, budget budget talk for sure is uh, is what uh, what the government wants to be talking about this week. Other parties may want to talk about foreign interference. The government wants to talk about the budget.
0: Well, I think you summed it up. Partisan's going to partisan, right? That's that's the way yep. that goes. Um, okay, and on that foreign interference file, then you mentioned the budget too. What else are you looking ahead to this week?
2: Well, you know what, I mean, I, the, the, though we, I'm obviously sort of uh, focused on federal politics, provincial politics often play a really important role in uh, in sort of the flavor of what's going on here in Ottawa. And there's a few issues bubbling over right now. Right next door to where you guys are in B.C., in Alberta, they're going to be full on into a uh, provincial election uh, at the end of this month. They're campaigning already, and it's pretty clear the federal government is one of the issues, the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa. The premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, conservative, United Conservative, uh, doesn't much like Ottawa, and I think she wants to pick a fight um, with uh, Justin Trudeau, and she thinks that will help her standing in the polls, so we're going to keep an eye on that. Same thing with a a progressive conservative government in Manitoba. Uh, The premier there is Heather Stephenson. She's behind in the polls. She needs to get her base excited, and no better way to do that than, yes, you're right, pick a fight with Ottawa. And then, here in Ontario... The Ontario Liberal Party, it's a third party right now. The Ontario Liberal Party has not had a leader for, well, since its last election, about a year and a bit ago. And there's a couple of federal MPs that may jump into that race. And the Ontario Liberal Party is very closely associated with the Federal Liberal Party. Um, and it's, it's often a source of candidates. It's a source of uh, fundraising, uh, volunteer staff, you name it. And right now, it's really on its back foot. So uh, we could see a, so the federal, some federal liberals are going to be spending their time trying to get the Ontario Liberal Party going. So there's a lot of politics going on right around the country. There always is. But uh, I think this is a spring where some, some uh, provincial politics is going to sort of keep our focus.
0: Right, and there's also this possible strike, right? Oh, and
2: <laughs> How could I forget? Yes, and there's a possibility that <laughs> yes. 150,000 – federal government employees could go and go and strike now they're still negotiating and they we're going to hear from that union a little later this morning that the public service alliance of canada peace act we're going to hear from them a little later this morning sort of about where things are at uh, you know they're 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 talking a tough game about you know would they're ready to go out and strike et cetera, et cetera. but they are at the table talking to their employer and so that's that's the good news out of that but you're right we got to watch out for a potential strike
0: all right david thank you Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Here's a question for you. Why do we need to create pharmaceutical-grade drugs like MDMA? And why is there a bit of a race right now to get this done? Well, there are labs across the country that are waiting for permission from Ottawa to open up compassionate access to the drug. And it all has to do with the growing interest in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Well, Ben Lightburn is a CEO and co-founder of Filament Health. They're one of those companies, actually, and he joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Sumi. Now, why is there such a rush to do this right now?
3: So it's a a really good question why now. Um, These drugs, MDMA, psilocybin, have been known for a very long time and have been known as promising treatments for a variety of conditions like PTSD, depression, substance use disorders. Um, But because of the war on drugs and prohibition since the 1970s, It's been very hard to do anything with them, research, administer them, you know, all funding really dried up. But in the last few years, there's been a big recent push. Some new studies have come out. There's been a lot of really promising research um, put out by the academic and the commercial uh, drug development community to show that there's really good promise in getting some of these treatments approved. And along with that has come the opening up of certain pieces of regulation, which allow for the early treatment of patients before these drugs become approved. And in Canada, we're talking about something called the Special Access Program. And that's a program whereby Canadians, through their physicians, can request access to unapproved, non-marketed drugs. These are typically either things that are still in the experimental phase or drugs that are approved in other jurisdictions, but not yet in Canada. And Canadians can actually request access to these substances for the treatment of their own conditions, as long as they meet the, the, the threshold of being in a serious or life-threatening um, condition. And in the beginning of 2022, Health Canada actually restored the ability for people to request access to psilocybin and MDMA, and over the last approximately year has been approving patients to receive psilocybin via this program, and they've done so about 90 times. They've approved about 90 patients, and we've actually been fortunate enough to supply about 84 of those patients, but up till now, there haven't been any actual GMP manufacturers of MDMA in this country, so there haven't been any approved um, patients for MDMA, and Last week, we were happy to announce that we actually, in partnership with a a customer of ours, made the first MDMA batch of um, GMP material available for patients through the special access program.
0: Okay, so Ben, I have questions about this then. So like, what are the parameters here? Like, how is this being followed? Are we tracking this? Do we know if this actually works for people or not? Or are we just putting it out there?
3: We're definitely tracking it. Uh, rest assured, it, it's not. this is very, very different than any kind of wide-scale approval or, or distribution. The SAP, the Special Access Program, is a very closely monitored program. Every single dosing um, and every single patient is tracked very closely by both Health Canada, by ourselves, and by the physicians. We're talking about, unfortunately, a group of patients who are in a very, very bad way oftentimes. Um, typically, they have very, very serious depression or they are suffering from something that's known as end-of-life distress, which typically comes along with a, uh, some kind of a terminal diagnosis. And these are patients that have either tried every other available therapy to no avail or these other therapies just don't work for them or, or are inappropriate for them to administer in, in some way. So it's only after trying everything else that the government will essentially say, sure, you can have permission to try this unproven uh, therapy. And, and it's important to remember that the efficacy of these drugs um, hasn't fully been um, uh, demonstrate and has been proven. These are not approved drugs. And so this program is designed to give kind of like last chance approvals to people um, uh, who are at the end of their rope that really are willing to try things that haven't yet been uh, approved for marketing for a wider audience in Canada.
0: Right. So then how, how is there access granted to this then? That, it seems to me like your doctor would really have to know how to jump through some hoops.
3: And that's one of the barriers that people often face um, when they hear about psilocybin in the media and they hear all the positive news and, you know, they might ask their doctor, hey, well, I heard that you know, people are now trying psilocybin. um, But the application process is quite onerous and quite strict. And, you know, Health Canada really looks at every single patient and makes sure that you've tried every other available treatment um, and that those treatments have failed or for some reason you you can't take, perhaps you're allergic to some other drug or something like that. It's only after failing everything else that you're allowed to take um, psilocybin and MDMA.
0: Right. Okay. So then is Health Canada... Are there studies being done on this then, Ben, so we know that this is actually helping people?
3: Certainly. So um, in parallel, um, um, many studies are being done in Canada and internationally about the safety and efficacy of of psilocybin and MDMA. Um, MDMA is actually coming out of Phase 3 clinical trials in the U.S. um, done by an organization called MAPS. um, And... um, psilocybin is in the middle of phase three is in a a sort of a similar spot that's one of the other requirements for um, drugs to be administered through the special access program they either have to be drugs that are approved in other jurisdictions so for instance it might be approved in the states but it's not yet approved in Canada or it has to be something that's undergoing um, clinical trials so we have there's about you know 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. clinical trials Ongoing, using our psilocybin drug in Canada alone, and and several more internationally. Well,
0: wow, the world is really changing, isn't it? Does it feel that way? It it
3: it definitely is. But re- remember also, when it comes to especially psilocybin, you know, humanity has coexisted with this substance for thousands of years, right? There's um, cave paintings and and sculptures going back to ancient times that show people interacting with psilocybin and, and using it for ceremonial or spiritual um, purposes. And it's really only the last 50 years and the war on drugs, which is entirely an artificially created um, stigma and, and, um, and, and bad dealing that we have against these substances.
0: Ben, I have a feeling that you have made that argument many, many times, but thank you very much for joining us on the show this morning.
3: Well, if it's too polished, I apologize, but I'll no. do my best to unpolish it a little bit for you
0: No, that's good. Thank you so much. You're very convincing. That is Ben Lightburn, the CEO and co-founder of Filament Health, talking about uh, the the race to essentially create a pharmaceutical grade MDMA is a last ditch effort to help people with PTSD and yes, PTSD. There certainly is an ongoing fight to kind of legally use these types of psychotherapy. We're hearing more and more about this too. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
4: This is mornings with Simi.
5: I am bothered by these events. Uh, And as a parent of two transit riding kids every single day, I am concerned. And the fact is that we will not stand for these types of incidents on our system.
0: All right. That is the CEO of TransLink, Kevin Quinn, at a press conference a couple of days ago, expressing anger, uh, saying he is frustrated by this situation. He says Metro Vancouver police have increased their presence on buses and skytrains. But here's what we know. We know that violence on our transit system right now is a huge concern for people and more of it. On the weekend, on Saturday, a man was sent to hospital after being stabbed in the stomach at Surrey Central Skytrain Station. And that follows two stabbings on Surrey transit buses. And one of those led to the death of 17-year-old Ethan Bestplug. This is a scary situation for a lot of people out there. And you know what? Really, for transit workers, too. Let's talk more about that. Tony Rabella joins us now, the president of QP7000. Tony, thanks for being here.
6: Good morning, Simi, and Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Tony, which part of the transit system do your workers represent?
6: Uh, we repre- We run the Expo and Millennium lines for the SkyTrain system. We uh, we have about a thousand workers that uh, work on those two lines.
0: And what are you hearing from some of those workers about the state of the system right now in terms of safety?
6: Yeah, well our SkyTrain attendants are our frontline workers and are our first responders. So we have been having conversations with them and what I've been hearing is they're they're very concerned with the recent events and you know they're they're the ones either responding to the event in process or just after the, the event has happened and assisting with medical aid or assisting with any other passengers and trying to keep them safe and calm. So yeah, our our members are are definitely concerned, and they've been quite rattled to, to, to tell you the truth.
0: Is this something that they have seen before, Tony, or is this do you think newer to their situations?
6: Um, I think it's just more. Uh, you know, we've with public transit, you're going to see some sort of violence. Uh, you know, depending on the day and the amount of ridership that's um, on on the system itself. Um, but i would say it's an uptick for sure and i think that's why our members are are concerned they don't want to continue to see this uh, everyone's on the same page we want to try and deter these senseless acts and not have these issues on on transit transit has to be safe for our members transit has to be safe for our riding public and we want to continue to provide that service our members are completely committed to providing a safe and reliable service but we need we need help
0: what kind of help do you think would work here
6: well we need to call on the on all levels of government we need an action plan um, to you know we really need to create a plan to deter and mitigate these senseless acts of violence and keep our members and the public safe I think our systems public transportation they all need to be safe for everyone and it's it's going to be, I don't think there's a short-term answer. Uh, I know people are calling for more uniforms, whether it be policing uh, or whether it be uh, us calling for more SkyTrain attendants to be a more physical deterrent. That still takes time to get all those, all those bodies in place. Um, so I think there's a longer-term so- solution. Uh, than there are a short-term solutions,
0: Right. And this has always been an issue, though, is it? Because we often hear from people that, oh, we never see transit security. We never see enough people on the system mm-hmm. um, to help them. Is that something that your employees experience?
6: Yeah, our members do, do have uh, conversations with um, the public when the public needs help and our members aren't there to help them right away. Um, we... Our stations are, are very large. Uh, our members can't be at every place at one time. Uh, we usually have at least one attendant per station on our system. Uh, at some of the bigger stations, there's two, uh, but we, we need more. Uh, it's apparent and, and, and well, it's very clear and apparent that we just need more staff um, we, we want to be there to, to help the public as quickly as possible. And, and sometimes we're dealing with an emergency already and another emergency happens, whether it be at a neighboring station or at the same station, whether we can be dealing with a medical issue or, or just dealing with the public, uh, itself, if they need to get their way to get on the system and, you know, to... Right. To their to their end location.
0: Is so, there an indication from you or from your employees that, that the management is listening here? Or that there is an understanding that okay, yeah, something has to be done.
6: Yeah, management is definitely listening. We've been having some conversations over the weekend and last week, um, and I think we're all on on the same page here that we we need to create a safe, uh, to, just to make sure that the system is is a lot more safe for our members and passengers. So. How that'll look in the future, we don't know, Um, but we definitely are committed to having conversations, obviously, with our our employer at SkyTrain, TransLink, uh, and all levels of of government uh, all the way up to the Feds.
0: And so, Tony, what is your message then to the transit riding public here?
6: My commitment, our, our commitment, is to continue to work with our employer and TransLink and all levels of government to to really look at how safe we can make our system. It, it's it, to me, it's one of the most important issues that um, we need to continue to push to have a safe system, and I think we need to continue to push on all the all other levels of government to to help us with that. We need help from all three levels. I think, you know, uh, working on repeat offenders, uh, having higher punishments for people who want to commit these senseless acts of violence, that needs to that needs to toughen up as well. So I think everyone has a part and we're committed to making sure that we voice those
0: concerns all the way through. And so you feel like this is just the same. It's a similar part of the larger issue that we have been hearing about. This is just how it's affecting transit.
6: Yeah, what you see in society outside of riding a bus or outside of riding a skytrain, we deal with all those same issues. We, you know, we we deal with mental health issues. Our members deal with folks who have mental health issues. There, there's the violence, everything that that you see outside of transit, we will deal with it. It's it's public transit, and it needs to. We need to. I think it's a, just a bigger conversation. <clears throat> Sorry. And, in total, but I, I, I ultimately do think that uh, we all have a, a very big part to play here.
0: Well, Tony, thanks so much for your time on that this morning.
6: No problem, thank you, Simmy.
0: That is Tony Rabella, who's a president of a QP Seven Thousand, representing workers on Transit Expo Line, Millennium Line. He said there, and those workers are worried too, just like the public is with what we see happening recent incidents include, just on this past weekend, uh, a stabbing at Surrey Central SkyTrain station there. We've seen two stabbing incidents on on Surrey transit buses, and one of which led to the death of 17-year-old Ethan Bestflug. Just a horrible situation there. We are hearing about it happening and, you know, it is kind of all over the Lower Mainland at this point. Now, Surrey's Mayor Brenda Locke issued a statement acknowledging this, saying the city is working with police and Metro Vancouver Transit Police to try to find solutions here. Uh, there are and, you know, more patrols happening on buses, on Skytrain, but is it enough? Like, do you feel safe riding transit? All I hear from people is I ride transit all the time and I never see any security or police on there. What's been your experience? Simi at cknw.com. Or you can call or text our buzzline line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi hasn't been an easy time in Canadian sports the last couple of years has it we've had one after another of these national sporting bodies university sports teams they're they're facing all sorts of controversy for abuse for neglect for discrimination and hockey canada of course has been at the core of this for quite a while now. And for a while there they had their funding, their national funding on pause while the federal government said, listen, we need to see some markers here of improvement. We need to see more accounting, more transparency. We need to know where the money is going, not to, you know, cover up or pay out uh, you know potential victims we need to know where your taxpayer funding is going. Well, apparently, they've gotten their books in better order now because we've heard the federal government now say Hockey Canada is going to have their funding restored. How can we make sure, though, that we clean up these types of sports organizations? Well, joining us now is Dr. Jennifer Walinga, who's a professor of communication and culture at Royal Roads University to talk about this. Dr. Walinga, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised to hear that Hockey Canada is just going to get their funding restored?
4: Well, I do believe there were some significant criteria that they had to meet in order to regain their funding. And I think probably the public, especially the sporting public, would be very interested to see evidence that they have indeed met those criteria. But I do agree with the criteria that they were uh, expected to meet as well in, in terms of transparency.
0: Is there, do you think, a kind of a reckoning that has been going on with these sports organizations in Canada?
4: Yeah, it's a great word. I do, uh, I do like it because I do think it is. It signifies that we've hit some sort of crisis point. Something has definitely been off the rails, and we need to reconcile. Right, bring it back onto uh, and into alignment with the values that we hold in Canada for our sport uh, bodies and just sport in general. Yeah, and I do think we've seen it right across so many of the national sport organizations, provincially, even at the club level, we're seeing that uh, a common pattern as well, that it emerges as complaints about maltreatment or cheating or violence, but it really drills down to, like we saw with the case of Hockey Canada, to to a crisis in leadership.
0: Right. I guess I wonder, once the spotlight isn't on it, because it seems like the spotlight's on it right now, Right. Mm-hmm. Once that spotlight moves, will that accountability still be there?
4: Exactly. That's the fear. And what is what is it's horrible what we're seeing across sport in Canada and across so many organizations. And we have to note it isn't every organization. I often find it's almost used as an excuse, like it's um, it's a it's just a, a phenomenon that we're experiencing. But it's very much again easy to trace back to. Uh, poor leadership practice, poor governance practice. So what needs to happen and what I think will happen because we're seeing it as such a prominent issue is to keep that spotlight on, but, you know, who's going to do it? Well, I think that's where that bottom-up approach comes in very strongly, that the members need to hold their sport organizations accountable. We're all responsible, and the public needs to. And um, I'm really proud of our athletes because it really has come from the athletes who are leveraging their their communication platforms to draw attention to the issue.
0: Right. It really is about, I think you're right, the Canadians. So that's us. We are the members. We, we are the people who participate in these organizations at the basic level. So how do we do that, though? How do we make sure that we are mm-hmm. asking the right questions?
4: Yeah, and I think this is the other silver lining of these cases, and particularly the Hockey Canada case. You know, these are all human beings, and we need to be compassionate for anyone who's involved in these kinds of crises, often it is unintentional, or um, you know, it's not like people are, in, are are evil or they have this intentional maliciousness. Um, but we need to be more responsible. And what, one thing I think that has come out of all of this is a recognition by members that they are indeed members. So. Most, the trouble is in Canada, we love our diversity and we all like to do things differently because of our different provincial uh, legislative approaches, et cetera. And I, I, I honour that and I value that and I, I respect it. But we all need to then understand what our rights and responsibilities are as members within our sport organizations at whatever level, whether it's regional, local or provincial or national. And I think what people are recognizing through many of these cases, but particularly hockey, is that the members have a lot of power. And when the provincial members, because every NSO has a different membership structure, but with hockey, it's the provinces are the members. When they stood up and took a stand and refused to support their NSO, it really woke the leadership up that, okay, these um, people that we actually serve, fiduciary means on behalf of. So the, the board for any national sport organization, any organization is acting on behalf of um, their, their members.
0: Do you think this has and, empowered people as well? Do you think now at that basic level, if you are a volunteer coach or you know volunteer as, as Hockey Canada or whatever, soccer, whatever it may be, that you can now say, hey, listen, this is not how it's supposed to be.
4: Great, uh, great word, empowered, and I think really this is where the media has come in because they have kept the spotlight on the issues and very in a really focused way. Uh, So it keeps reminding people that you know you have a responsibility as a member to hold your organizational leadership to account. Uh, I do believe it has highlighted for people the power they actually have. I think the trouble is that, and I said this in an article I recently published that there's a power imbalance that that perpetuates so the the sport organization still wields power over their members because they hold they hold the, the keys to the bank, right? So if a province or a club is afraid they may not be awarded some funding or, you know, some kind of a a reward that they have to apply for, you know, there are grants, et cetera, that the NSO can distribute. If they're afraid, they may not get that if they misbehave. It's a lot like the pattern we see with athletes who are afraid to speak up because they may face repercussions. So we have to solve that as well and make sure that those, um, that the members like the athletes are partners, not some kind of subservient, um, uh, they're not in some sort of subservient role.
0: Okay, but these we're talking about the people learning here, but what about these organizations, Dr. Walenga? Do you think these organizations have been put on notice that perhaps the, the public sentiment has changed here?
4: I think so. I think until we see People really flexing their membership rights and responsibilities, which we are seeing to some degree. You know, rowing just held a special meeting. I don't think members even realized that they could call a special meeting and that they can, according to the Not-for-Profit Societies Act, remove directors, as many as they want. So they have the power to do that. The trouble is, again, the NSO holds all the communication. So we... I. Sport Canada does have a sport governance code that they expect NSOs to uh, learn from and uh, abide by, but it isn't mandated. I, I believe it should be legislated. It should be mandated. You must follow the sport governance code. Uh, you must follow the, the rules of proper governance. And and there must be a report to members. Like It needs to be more explicit, too, that the members really are the ones who are ultimately... Um, in charge of the organization.
0: That is very true. Uh, Dr. Wolenga, thank you so much for your time on that.
4: Thanks so much. Take care.
0: You too. Dr. Jennifer Willenga is a professor of communication and culture at Royal Roads University. Hockey Canada has had its funding restored by the federal government, but the question is, has the organization really changed its ways? Is there more accountability, more transparency? And not just in hockey, but in any amateur sport organization. What's your experience been with that? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've been hearing it in the news all morning. It sounds like a public service strike is imminent. If a deal is not reached by 9 o'clock Eastern tomorrow, uh, that means that there is going to be a full-on strike by about 155,000 workers of the Public Servants Alliance of Canada. That would impact, you know, different federal government jobs right across the country, but in particular, the Canada Revenue Agency. So we want to find out where things are right now and really what you need to know. So George Joining us now is Jamie Mills, the Regional Executive Vice President of BC's Public Service Alliance of Canada. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me this morning, Timmy. Now, Jamie, has there been any progress made? I know that you've been raising awareness since you took the strike vote a couple of weeks ago, but what's happened in the last couple of weeks?
5: Well, to start with, we've been at the table for over two years, but you're absolutely right. Over the past two weeks, we've had bargaining teams in Ottawa uh, meeting all hours of the day and night with the employer. Uh, Unfortunately, we still are not at a deal for the better part of 155,000 Canadians.
0: Would you classify it as as far apart?
5: I'd classify classify it as not close enough to give us the contract that our members deserve.
0: Okay. And so can you recap for us then where we are at in terms of what the next couple of days looks like?
5: Uh, So the next couple of days, obviously, this morning, uh, our national president, Chris Aylward, did advise that if we're unable to reach an agreement uh, by midnight Ottawa time Tuesday, uh, that 155,000 members will be uh, stating a general strike coast to coast to coast. That being said, we still are cautiously optimistic to reach a deal. Uh, Our goal the entire time has been to reach a deal, but the employer has done nothing but drag their feet and cause constant delays at the bargaining table.
0: What would you say are the big issues here?
5: The big issues, well, obviously, uh, fair wages that uh, represent increases uh, that we've seen in inflation. uh, And as well, we want to ensure that uh, a work from home policy or a hybrid policy is actually enshrined in our collective agreement and can't just be yanked out from under us. Uh, Other than that, we're we're really trying to uh, eliminate any further contracting out and as well ensure our workplaces are safe and harassment-free.
0: Now, I keep hearing about the work-from-home issue. So, Jamie, maybe you could explain to us, like, what happened with that? Like, during the pandemic and post-pandemic, have workers just been unilaterally told to come back to the office?
5: In short, yes. So, for decades, we were told that telework or work-from-home would never work. The pandemic happened. Uh, clearly, we demonstrated that not only uh, is it possible, but it's extraordinarily successful, From the best I've heard, productivity is up, absenteeism is down. So a lot of our members, not necessarily all of them, because we do have a lot of members that continually will work in the office. uh, But for those that were able, uh, they'd drawn up telework agreements with the employer. And then on December 15th, there was a unilateral decision from Treasury Board to put everyone back into the office uh, at minimum 40 to 60 percent.
0: Okay, and so that is something that has been fought, I take it?
5: Uh, fought as much as we can. Again, we want to ensure that it's enshrined in our collective agreements. And and I'll just be really blunt. That whole process of putting people back into the office, it hasn't worked. We've seen major departments already get one-year deferrals on this. We're hearing about people going into the office and not having proper desks and chairs, or simply they're going into the office to be on Teams calls with other people throughout the country. That can be done at home.
0: Okay, let's talk about essential service levels here, Jamie. Because obviously, pe- everybody can't just leave, right? There is there are some limits here. Absolutely. And what is that like then? So, what will still get done if there is a strike?
5: Well, obviously, we want to ensure that the protection for Canadians is is still there. So, there will be uh, some areas will be hit harder than others, uh, but there will always be a, a minimum mm-hmm. service level uh, available for mm-hmm. emergencies. But what we can really see that will be shut down uh, and where the impact will be. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency has very few essential uh, employees, so there'll be significant delays trying to reach call centers or deal with tax officers. There's going to be delays on passports and immigration applications. There's the potential for big interruptions to our trade and supply chains at places such as ports, harbors, airports. Uh, military bases will be slowing down. Uh, you know, essentially, we're talking about one-third of the entire federal public service uh, potentially on a picket line as early as Wednesday.
0: Wow! So that means, I guess, if you expect a passport, things like that, that won't get done, really.
5: Uh, I again, we're still trying to get a fair collective agreement. Uh, but if we're un- unable to get that, there will there will be significant delays in a lot of these processes. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Wh- when was the last time something like this happened?
5: Geez, the last time a big federal public service strike happened would have been 2004, uh, when at the same time Treasury Board and the Canada Revenue Agency uh, were on strike as well.
0: Okay, so it's been a while then. Um, so we wait to see what happens. Are there any other negotiations scheduled at this point?
5: Yeah, uh, so we're currently at the table right now. Uh, we kept uh, so our, our Canada Revenue Agency team was planned to book to meet this week, so they're meeting. Uh, Our other four large groups worked over the weekend uh, and are continuing to work right now. So when we say, you know, Tuesday by uh, 9 p.m., that still gave the employer 36 hours to come forward with a fair agreement uh, that respects the hard work that we do and the, the realization of massive inflation.
0: All right. Well, Jamie, thanks very much for explaining it to us this morning. Cindy thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's Jamie Mills, the Regional Executive Vice President of BC's Public Service Alliance of Canada. This is the union with about 155,000 federal public servants in it. And they are pretty much in a strike position in the next 48 hours here. So they've been decently far apart, it sounds like, uh, in the negotiations so far, there is a deadline of tomorrow night. If that passes, then they will be on strike Wednesday. So, we are talking uh, the, you know, Canada Revenue Agency workers. We're talking where you get your passports. We are talking employment insurance. We're talking everything from uh, cleaners who clean the offices. I mean, you name it, essentially. This is a lot of people uh, right across the country. So, I was saying in the last couple of weeks, if you haven't gotten your taxes done and in, today would be a really good day to do that. We do know the federal government has said there is not going to be an extension of the deadline for taxes. So they're saying still get that in. In could be anything. It's Coast Guard search and rescue teams. It is, you know, workers right across the country. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. It sounds like right now, though, uh, it is not a great situation and that about 155,000 of these PSAC workers could be out on strike as early as Wednesday.